This week, Prigozhin's death, Trump's fourth arrest, and the BRIC summit. Hi, I'm your host, Brian Bridgeforth, and thank you for tuning in to my first ever podcast. It is designed to compliment my blog at brianfbridgeforth.com. Since this is my first podcast, let me take a moment to introduce myself. I spent 12 years advising political campaigns at all levels of government. This included anything from city council to state races to congressional and federal senate campaigns, but my main interest has always been focused on what was going on internationally. That always seemed to be the focus of my curiosity. I always wanted to try and figure out why these events were happening and the mechanics behind and the motivations behind those who are influencing events. I started my blog for really selfish reasons. For me, it was a tool to help me research, dive deeper, and understand global events. For me, part of that learning process was being able to also describe and articulate what I had learned to others. With that said, I do not pretend to be even close to an expert when it comes to international relations. Though what I do hope people find from my blog is thoughtful, well-researched analysis of the events that are shaping the world we see today. With that said, let's jump into the events we have seen this past week. Two months ago, the world was shocked by the uprising against Russian military leadership and how far Yevgeny Prigozhin went in confronting what he saw as shortcomings in support behind the war in Ukraine. For sure, the world was galvanized by sights of armored military equipment and personnel on the streets of Russia. He captured a port city, was beginning to make a march towards Moscow. For those of us with long memories, it drew pictures of when Gorbachev was held hostage in an attempted coup towards the end of the Soviet era. And for those who might be unfamiliar with who Prigozhin is, or I should say was, he was the leader of the infamous Wagner Group, or as they call it there, the Wagner Group. It's a group named after a call sign used during World War Two by the Nazis. It's known for its brutality, and it was a tool by Putin to be able to operate in a way with plausible deniability. The group first sort of came to international light during the... Uh, was it 2014 invasion of the Donbass region in Ukraine where these green men or soldiers in military fatigues and armed spoke Russian but they didn't carry any insignia such as Russian flags or any flags of any kind of nationality which is against the Geneva Conventions and like I said it was a way for Putin to operate with plausible deniability. Wagner not only operated in Ukraine they had a number of what should we say, contracts in the Africa continent. In order to operate off the books of the Russian government, they offered services to various governments, especially on the African continent and in the Middle East with countries like Syria, security services at a very premium rate. 
these services would provide security, especially for mineral wealth, things like oil or precious metal mines in Africa. And the profits from those security contracts would in return provide the funding for Wagner to purchase military equipment off the books of Russia. They were able to purchase military equipment and armaments and do Putin's bidding. Prigozhin was so successful at running Wagner that Putin turned to him to run his program of interference in the 2016 U.S. elections, the so-called troll farms he led behind shell companies. And that came to light during the Mueller investigation of Donald Trump, who we'll talk about the latest developments with here in a moment. So it was certainly, Prigozhin and Putin definitely had a very close relationship. It was one based on trust and had gone back decades to Putin's time running in St. Petersburg. Prigozhin definitely had a rough background. He served time in prison in the Soviet era after the Soviet Union collapsed. He took advantage of the chaos to start a humble hot dog business as a hot dog vendor. And he was able to turn that into becoming a gourmet restaurant operator and had his own chain of restaurants that catered to Russian elites. That is where he uh, met Putin because Putin was, at the time, the mayor of St. Petersburg. And that relationship continued and followed Putin to Moscow. Putin and Prigozhin's relationship was so close that Prigozhin was provided with sweetheart contracts to provide services to the Kremlin, to cater to the Kremlin elite. And he became known to be Putin's chef, which is an odd background for someone who would eventually run what was a de facto military arm of one of the world's great powers. So with that relationship and how close and how long it had lasted, it was a shock that Prigozhin would seemingly damage Putin in such a critical way as challenging Russia's military, which by default was criticizing Putin's control over his own leaders. And there was some buildup to the rebellion Prigozhin had increasingly been saying more and more hostile things about military leadership. Most recently before the rebellion, he appeared in a video where in the background was a group of dead Wagner soldiers in Ukraine. And he spoke very forcefully against the Russian military head about his ineptitude. And he went further than that in audio recordings and videos where he made accusations well, not accusations, but really spoke the truth of the situation in Ukraine, that the situation was more dire than the Russian government, well, Putin, was leading the public on about. Though despite his increasing bellicosity towards Russian leadership, it still was a surprise that this trusted advisor, even considered a friend to Putin, would stage rebellion against the Russian government. But just as suddenly as the rebellion began, it ended. 24 hours after the beginning of the rebellion, Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko announced he had negotiated an end to the rebellion where Prigozhin would turn around from his march to Moscow and then exile himself to Belarus. 
clearly there was something behind the deal that was made that allowed Prigozhin to think he had accomplished something. But even to the most lay of Putin observers, it is obvious that Putin does not allow even for the most minute slights to go unpunished. Most people had come to the conclusion that Prigozhin was a dead man walking. It should not have come as a surprise two months later a plane fell from the sky on fire that had a Prigozhin on the passenger manifest. The real surprise was why it took two months for this to happen and that it happened when Prigozhin was mysteriously back in Russia. Why on earth would he even dare to come back into Russia after what he did? Was it a case where his ego led him to believe he was immune to retribution by Putin because of their past close relationship? Or was he lured somehow by Putin into believing he was safe and was needed back in Russia? Those outside of Putin's inner circle probably will never know the answer to those questions. However, with that said, the Russian government did confirm that Prigozhin was indeed on the plane. They announced they are investigating the crash and deny any wrongdoing. U.S. intelligence seems to be unanimous that the crash was caused by some sort of explosion, but did not elaborate. So this leaves us with the question of, now what? For sure, Putin has restored his authority and eliminated a great internal enemy, and he has also established control over what was once semi-independent, the Wagner Group. And while he seemed to be at his weakest point in his presidency in the immediate aftermath of the rebellion, he is probably now more secure in his authority, at least arguably so. As for the future of Wagner, it remains unclear, but it appears its role in allowing Putin to have plausible deniability and actions around the world and in Ukraine will continue. Once again, this time over his fourth indictment in the state of Georgia. This indictment, like his last indictment by Jack Smith, is also over his actions surrounding January 6th. With these new charges, Trump was indicted along with 18 others under Georgia's racketeering charges. And these are really serious in that they carry a minimum five-year prison term with a maximum of 20 years. With his Georgia arrest, unlike the other arrests Trump has gone through, he did have a mugshot taken, which is now really going to be a fixture in American history. Of course, Trump maintains that he is innocent, that he is a victim of some sort of conspiracy, 
and immediately turned the mugshot into campaign paraphernalia. With that said, Trump has always been an interesting American political phenomenon where indictments to a normal politician would immediately be an end to their career. For Trump, it has boosted his standing amongst his supporters and even increased his polling numbers. But polling numbers are not exactly reality. The reality is Trump has collected four indictments with more than 90 felony charges. He is innocent until proven guilty, but this is going to hog a lot of his schedule at a key time when he needs to be campaigning for the GOP primaries. And it's not only time, but it's also resources. Since the beginning of the year, Trump has spent a vast majority of the funds that have been raised through his campaigns and political action committees on his legal bills. Given the number and sheer magnitude of the charges Trump now faces, it is really hard to see how he comes out of this unscathed in any normal circumstances. And for sure, Trump and his team of lawyers know this. But Trump is not an ordinary person. He is a former president that has a shot at becoming president once again, even though it does seem like it is a very steep uphill climb for him. And with that said, the strategy Trump and his team of lawyers have seemingly begun to try to implement is delay, delay, delay. The longer they can delay trials and drag out proceedings, the more it gives the appearance that the trials are interfering with a presidential election race. And prosecutors and judges are very mindful of that. They do not want to give the appearance of playing and meddling in politics. And if and if Trump can push off the trials or drag them out long enough and he does happen to win the White House for a second term, then he has better options of avoiding serious punishments. Those could be running out the clock on the statute of limitations to being able to manipulate the legal system through his attorney general. Of course, none of these would be pretty and they all would be controversial, even challenging the Constitution in and of itself, but they certainly seem to be better options than what Trump is facing standing a normal set of trials. Despite all that, it does currently look as if Trump is going to be forced to stand trial before he even gets through the primary season. Jack Smith's second indictment against Trump also over the events surrounding January 6th seems on track to begin after the first of the year. Of course, Trump and his team of lawyers wanted to delay that. They requested the case be pushed off to 2026. And really, that demonstrated the desperation the Trump team is finding itself in. Most legal experts laughed at the attempt to postpone the trial that far out into the future. It is not an overly complicated case. There is not a lot of discovery and procedure involved. And it appears the judge is going to favor beginning the trial sometime after the first of the year. And I'm starting to see signs that those who support Trump are starting to see the reality that's setting in surrounding his legal jeopardy. 
despite his vast lead in the uh, polling for the GOP nomination. Other polls asking Republicans would they support Trump if he was convicted of a felony. More than half said they would not. So that demonstrates some acknowledgement of the seriousness of what is going on. And it also demonstrates that Republicans are starting to think in back of their heads about a party led by someone else besides Trump. I also wanted to go back and discuss one other major obstacle that Trump faces. I wrote about in my blog this past week, and that is if, in fact, he could actually run for a second term as president. There are a number of constitutional scholars now starting to openly discuss the 14th Amendment, particularly Section 3, which states that anybody who has taken the oath of office and participated in an insurrection or rebellion against the United States is ineligible from holding future office unless two-thirds of Congress approves. And I think this issue is something we'll hear more and more about as the election season heats up. Though one thing is for sure, Trump is challenging the American election system and judicial system in a way it has never been challenged before. So let's move on to another event that happened this week. Definitely not as exciting as an assassination or a president going to jail. But I would like to turn our focus to this week's BRICS Summit. For those who may not be familiar with BRICS, BRICS is an economic grouping of five countries, that is Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. It began in 2009, and originally the term BRICS was coined by an analyst at Goldman Sachs, and the name has stuck ever since. The group is basically designed to be an economic alternative to more Western-centric economic forums such as the G7 and G20. And two notable events happened at this year's summit in Johannesburg, South Africa. The first being Vladimir Putin was unable to attend. This was not because of scheduling conflicts, but because the International Criminal Court had issued an arrest warrant for Putin due to the war crimes going on in Ukraine. So in his place, Putin sent his foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, to conduct business at the summit. I should add that if Putin attended the summit, South African authorities would have been obliged to arrest Putin and turn him into the ICC since South Africa is a signatory of the Rome Treaty. This event demonstrates how isolated Putin has become on the international stage over his war in Ukraine. This year's BRICS Summit was also notable because the group chose to expand the number of its members. 
for me, it was interesting to dive into the different dynamics and agendas of the various members of BRICS. On the one hand, you have China and Russia who want to expand the membership to increase their influence. Of course, China wants to build BRICS into an anti-Western, anti-U.S. economic bloc, and Russia is looking for a way to extend its influence, especially after Western sanctions from their war in Ukraine. And then you have India and Brazil, on the other hand, who are primarily just looking for access to Chinese markets. And they do have relatively close relationships with Western countries and the U.S., and they don't want to sacrifice that. And in India's case specifically, they don't want to strengthen China any more than it already is. The two countries often squabble over various issues, particularly border issues. It was just a couple years ago was their latest border dispute, which left two dozen military soldiers dead. And then there's South Africa, who really loves being a part of a club. They do not want to sacrifice their clout within that club, and they try to hedge back and forth between the other two sides with proposals such as creating a two-tier system where they and the original other four members of BRICS are on the first tier, and any additional members are a second tier membership with less powers and clout. It's unclear with the current expansion if South Africa was able to negotiate that between China, Russia, India, and Brazil. There seems to be some sort of agreement made, but there was no details given over membership expansion. A common term used to describe the five original BRICS members is a motley crew of nations, and it seems with the addition of six more nations, it's even more motley. The new nations being allowed into BRICS are Argentina, Egypt, Ethiopia, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and finally we have the United Arab Emirates. Iran is probably the most notable of the group because just like Russia, it is an international pariah, and Iran is probably seeking the same kind of benefits that Russia is to expand its influence to have access to different markets under pressure from international sanctions. But members such as Brazil do not outwardly show any reservations about Iran being a member. The country that, of course, benefited the most from a BRICS expansion was China. They had been pushing for the expansion the most and argued that it would make the bloc stronger, but given all the differences between member countries as far as their styles of government, how they run their economies, their varying degrees of wealth and poverty, and their varying geopolitical aims, it's hard to see, at least for the time being, how this economic group moves forward with a coherent message and goal other than just existing for the time being. But that shouldn't be confused with the fact that this economic bloc does serve an important purpose. It gives member countries a sense of belonging and offers them choices in which economic alliances they can join. Most notably, for the time being, that seems to be emanating the most out of the Middle East, which is trying to recalibrate after the geopolitical storm after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. They're looking for options other than 
just Russia or the United States. And China is a very appealing center of gravity to gravitate towards. Some of the headlines I have read about the recent BRICS expansion question if this is reordering the geopolitical landscape. And my sentiment of the matter is right now it is not, but it's something to keep an eye on in the years and decades ahead to see how this group evolves and develops a coherent purpose. And that about wraps it up for me for my very first podcast. Thank you for tuning in. I'd like to say that all opinions are my own, and I hope you found this informative. Thank you very much, and have a good day.